third lesson in the study of Revelation. And we left off in chapter one last week with this awesome look at the Son of Man and his ministry. And what we found was that the Son of Man is spoken of in the scriptures and in the extra biblical literature of Yeshua's day as the judge, the judge of all the earth. And we all know that the Son of Man is the Messiah. To show you what such an awesome judge he is, we were told that John had spent three and a half years in a discipleship relationship with the Messiah, traveling with him, eating with him, praying with him, studying with him. In other words, it was a very intimate relationship. And yet in the presence of the Son of Man, John falls on his face as though dead. Then the Son of Man has a favorable judgment upon John and he raises him up with his right hand. And the lesson today, the Son of Man is in the midst of these seven messianic communities. And he is going to make some judgments about these communities. The Son of Man judges these seven messianic communities and gives the transgressions that they've made. And if we compare the with the characteristics of the cities that we're in, what we find is how easily congregations can begin to reflect the cities in which they were. Instead of the values of God that we serve, they begin to reflect the cities in which they live. And if we don't remain vigilant, we too can succumb to the values of the country and the cities in which we live. And sadly, that's what's happening in our day. There are actually churches succumbing to things that are an abomination to God. And we'll spend the next few weeks looking at some of the admonition of these seven assemblies by the judge. The Son of Man is about to judge these assemblies in these chapters. And these two chapters are hard because they speak of things uh, the Messianic communities were doing right, but more often they speak of the things that they were doing wrong. And you say, well, how can that be hard for us? Well, you remember my favorite verse, right? Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been is that which shall be. That which has been done is that which shall be done. There's nothing new under the sun. These things that he's going to speak of did filter into these congregations as well as congregations of today. And that's what makes these judgments hard. The admonition to these congregations is filled with pagan worship the remnants of which are alive and well in the country today. And we're going to see that as we continue. Many of the pagan gods and practices, many people think of these pagan gods and practices that we're going to talk about tonight that were in these cities as just ignorant people participating in sinful behavior. And the gods and goddesses are just figments of their imagination. However, when you examine these things, what you find is that they occur over and over in every society of old in different cultures. The gods and goddesses have differing names, but the behavior is always the same. The worship is always the same. The gods and goddesses have differing names like Asherah, Artemis, Diana, Ishtar, but they all have incorporated into their worship prostitution, sexual deviation, and the ruination of the family unit. They all have that in common. And here's a picture I put up of Artemis. And notice that she's very sexual. And that's because her worship included prostitution and the like. We have gods like Baal, whose name means Lord, a master, or husband. And Baal took on the shape of a bull or a ram. 
and had associations with fertility. And I'm not going to put up illustrations of these other gods because they're just pretty horrible. You can take that one down for now too if you want. But we have Molech. I had a picture of him, but I didn't want to put it up here because it's so terrible. He demanded the sacrifice of children in the Bible. And if you look at his images, his arms were always extended and facing down. So when the child was put into his arms, he would roll off into the fire. What we find is that these gods and goddesses are actually spirits that are directing the behaviors of people, and they're doing it even today. And let me give you an example. In the 60s, we had a sexual revolution like the goddesses that we just spoke of. That revolution led to a lot of unwanted children, which led to abortion being legalized in 1973. Just like the god of Molech that we spoke of, demanding the sacrifice of children. And the point is this. These are spirits that take hold of a people and a civilization. And the point is we're going to see them that they're taking hold of the cities of these congregations in the countries as well. And the question for us as believers, as we see these things happening in our society today, is how long is the patience of God going to last before it comes to an end? What we have with the goddesses is sexual promiscuity. And we can see this in the image of the goddesses, like we saw a moment ago. And with sexual promiscuity comes unwanted children, making the door open for the spirit of Molech, and the offering of children. The Romans would just take the unwanted babies and take them out into a field and leave them for the animals. And we see all of this taking place in our country today, particularly in the last 75 years. And so let me just say, if you feel a bit uncomfortable for the next few weeks as we talk about these churches, please forgive me in advance. But if you really want to understand the book, then these things have to be revealed as well. Now, as I stated before, these congregations he speaks of will be in Asia Minor. They're the Eastern congregation as opposed to the Western congregations like Rome. And we can find a bit of really important information. We did find an important bit of information about these congregations last week in the writings of the church fathers. And remember that they said that these congregations in the East were Torah observant. They observed the law. And it actually said they remained wholly Jewish. These congregations in the East were Torah observant. They followed God's law. And that's going to be important for us as we go through these lessons on the churches. John and all the apostles were Jewish men. Okay, so these congregations were Torah observant. And uh, they live a Torah observant lifestyle. We're told in Acts chapter 21 that Paul himself lived a life in obedience to the law. Scripture told us that all Scripture is God-breathed, useful in correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So Paul really had a high regard for the law. He was a Torah-observant Jew. And what God will praise these congregations for, he praises them for living as he instructs. As I said, these seven distinct congregations in Asia Minor, why did God choose seven congregations? I mean, there were many more congregations that could have used a word of encouragement or a word of correction. Certainly Rome was one of those who could have used some correction. So why seven? Because everything has meaning. 
Well, seven is the number of completions. So while these are seven distinct congregations with problems, the words spoken to them will tell us much about what a complete or a good congregation of Yeshua should look like. And also it's going to tell us what keeps them from being that complete, perfect congregation of Yeshua. And this info can be hard or it can be a blessing to us as well if we look at it and begin to do the work that God praises these congregations for. And it also tells us what we should not be doing. We should not be doing these things. Okay, so let's begin with Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. And the angel of Messiah's community in Ephesus, right? Okay, Ephesus is one of the most important messianic communities in Asia Minor. It already is a religious center, not for the worship of the God of Israel, but first and foremost for the pagan goddess Artemis. And we have to remember that all of these cities will be centers of pagan worship. All the people of God will be praised for their resisting that worship. And they will be corrected and judged for their participation in that worship. Artemis is also called Diana. And we're going to see, as we spoke of, those gods and goddesses are going to have a lot in common. In fact, they all sound like the same gods and goddesses. They just have different names, but they all require the same things. And Artemis was said to be the mother of the gods. So Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 goes on to say, This says the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, one who walks in the midst of the seven gold mineral, the seven gold lampstands. Okay, so with these assemblies, he refers back to chapter 1. With each one of these assemblies, he's going to refer back to chapter 1 and the vision of these assemblies. And who does he refer back to? Well, the Son of Man, the judge. One like the Son of Man, the judge. So these are the judgments of the judge of all the earth. And this comes to them as a warning, a reminder to them that he has the final say in the judgments in these matters. And so listen to uh, verse 2 now. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. There's a couple of things we can learn from Yeshua. First, he will begin each of these admonitions with praise for what they're doing right. And he says, I know of your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. And so when Yeshua speaks of good deeds, you can be reasonably sure that he's speaking of the mitzvot, the good works that are spoken of in the commandments. Remember, these folks are Torah observant and good deeds to them are the good deeds that are spoken of in Scripture. And so those things tell us that we should help our fellow man, that we should be givers of charity. That's one of the good deeds. Deeds that show the love of God. Deeds that show the love of your neighbor. And he says, you have worked hard at these things and you have shown perseverance. The first century assembly after the outpouring of the Spirit is a good example of this. It tells us that the people had all things in common. They sold their possessions. Some of them sold their possessions and gave to the poor in the community so no one would go hungry. Yeshua's teachings and parables all revolve around faithfulness to God and one's fellow man and generosity toward your fellow man. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 and 3 says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who came to be apostles but are not and have found them false. And you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. 
Okay, so it says you're enduring hardships and persevering. In other words, they're suffering. And the reason they're suffering is they're living in pagan cities. And they, because of their Torah observant, they differ from those in the city, and they're easily recognizable. They keep the Shabbat. In these cities, you didn't take a day off. That was considered foolishness. But they keep the Shabbat. They eat differently. They dress differently. They keep the festivals of Adonai. One of the good deeds is they keep Torah. However, the word they preach is in conflict with the gods of these cities. They're preaching marriage. They're preaching faithfulness to one person. The goddess of the city is Artemis, and she's seen as promiscuous. The temples have hundreds of eunuch priests, religious prostitutes, and worship was very erotic. But this congregation teaches, love your fellow man. And the cities that they're in focus on dominance over others. And they were teaching against idol worship, and these cities are full of it. So I want to read from, these are off the page. But recognizing that he was Jewish for about two hours, they all with one voice cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After the town clerk quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who doesn't know that the city of Ephesus is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of her image fallen from heaven? Okay, so how were they to judge people who came into the congregation? First of all, let's say we find that Idol makers are suffering. And the reason they're suffering is because of these messianic congregations. They're bringing people in and they're no longer idol worshipers. And these congregations were persecuted for other reasons as well. Under Domitian, the emperor at the time, a tax was levied on the Jewish people. It was levied on a per person basis. So the bigger family you had, the more tax you paid. And so imagine this was a great hardship for those who were Jewish. And when you live a life as God instructs, you're easily recognizable because you're in a world that doesn't live as God instructs. It says they have tested those who proclaim to be sent or apostles. They're claiming to be sent by God. And how would you test someone who was claimed to be sent by God? Well, the same way the Bereans tested someone who they said was sent by God. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And so here's the way you test someone who claims to be sent by God. Does what he say line up with God's word? Not that he can't be wrong about some minor things like how you observe this command or that, but his message has to be in keeping with the good news. There can be no deviation from the major points of the law and the good news of the gospel. Remember, this is also one of the tests for a prophet. There were many false messengers in the first century, and they were trying to draw men after themselves. Paul speaks of them in Ephesians. He says of these people and tells these people in Ephesus as he's leaving, he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples away after them. And so what we learn here is up until this point, 30 or 40 years after this warning that Paul had given him, they had been faithful. They had listened to Paul's warning. And as we saw already, they have not forsaken Torah. 
They are suffering, living in this town of pagans under Domitian's rule, but persevering. But they do have a problem, and we find it in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So right away, we have to determine what is the first love. And I've heard differing views, depending on what kind of a community you're in. Some of them said even it was Torah observance, that they had forsaken the Torah, that they had lost their first love of Torah, good deeds. However, that doesn't agree with the text because, as we just saw, they were praised for their good works, their Torah observance. It also doesn't agree with the summation that we read last week of these Eastern congregations Remember that said they were wholly Jewish and nothing else. For they used not only the New Testament, but also the Old, like the Jews. Others say their first love is Yeshua. And I'm of the opinion and agree with those who say it was Yeshua, but I have some qualifications. So the qualification that I'm going to speak about is some of what I see in Messianic communities today. You know, when you come to grips with Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been is that which shall be, and that which has been done is that which shall be done, there's nothing new under the sun, you start to realize that if you want to see the problems that they were suffering, you only need to look at the congregations today, because there is nothing new under the sun. And so to determine, in essence, what their spiritual problems were in those congregations of old, you only have to look at the spiritual problems in the congregations today because there is nothing new under the sun. Loss of their first love is not because of a loss of Torah observance, but I think it was because sometimes we get overzealous in our Torah observance. There's a tendency within Messianic communities to focus inward on Torah observance which can lead to a decrease in spreading the good news because we're so inward focused. Remember, he started this letter with one who walks in the midst of the golden menorot. The focus is on light, and light is understanding. And we all know Messianic communities spoken of here are praised for their being lights. We're supposed to be lights to the world. Over and over we're told that. In Matthew he tells us, you are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand so it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, we're to be lights to the world. And if you remember back to when you first met Yeshua, you were zealous. And you wanted to go out and tell everybody what you found, right? Well, I'm of the opinion that the first love that's spoken of here is this desire to tell others about Yeshua. It speaks of their persecution and their suffering, which tells us the more you witness to others, the more you can be persecuted in these cities. So because of persecution, the zeal that they have had turned inwardly to their own Torah observance and the Torah observance of the community. There's another pitfall here. If you remember when you first came to Yeshua, you had this wonderful relationship with Yeshua. It was our desire to share that with the world. Our focus, if it's turned inward to our own Torah observance or our own lives, something else can suffer. Our prayer life can suffer. Those things that we do to develop a relationship with Yeshua and draw close to him. And that was a large part of our first love. 
And I believe that this also speaks of that initial desire to declare Yeshua to others and this desire to have this personal relationship. And I think the next verse kind of tells us that. It says, remember then from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your menorah from its place unless you repent. And Yeshua tells them to repent and do the deeds they did at first. The outreach that they did at first. The life that they had at first. And again, it speaks to the assembly as being one that's not inward focused, but with an outward focus. That of being lights to a fallen world. The menorah is a light to the fallen world. Paul admonishes us to do the same thing in Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among them, you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that you may boast in the day of Messiah that I did not run and labor in vain. Okay, so this lack of being a light in a fallen world is not a good thing. And to think that you could be persevering, resisting false teaching, resisting this pagan worship, and doing good for your fellow man, that you're Torah observant, focusing your walk on good, your relationship with Yeshua could suffer if you get too inward focused. And you're no longer going to be reaching out like you did in the past. You're not going to be reaching out past your own synagogue doors. And so you have your lampstand removed. You see, if we change the joy we had in telling others the good news, the relationship we had with Yeshua, and focus inward on Torah observance, then we are not being a light. And if we allow our light to go out, why do you need a menorot? And so you can have it removed. A congregation or a community of people must have at the core of everything they do Yeshua. We teach Jewish foundations of our faith here at Sar Shalom. If that replaces Messiah, if it replaces our outreach to the world and the blessing that we found in Messiah, then we have a problem and we no longer need a menorah because we're no longer lights. Okay, verse 6 says, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so it looks like we have to understand the Nicolaitans. And I put something I found on them up here. The Nicolaitans, a heretical group in the early assembly who taught immorality and idolatry. The Nicolaitans have been linked to a type of heresy taught by Balaam, especially the pagan feasts and orgies that they apparently propagated in the first century assembly. Okay, the Nicolaitans are going to come up in the Nicolaitans, excuse me, are going to come up in another city as well. And the meaning of the word Nicolaitans means victorious over the people. And some have come up with a teaching that these folks were actually lorded authority over the people in the congregation. But that's really not what's being spoken of here. More than likely, the Nicolaitans taught some degree of participation in these feasts and orgies. Was permissible. Being the center of the worship of the god of Artemis, there were thousands of priests, thousands of priestesses serving in the temple. And these people had come up with excuses to continue to participate in these things. I believe the heresy of the Nicolaitans was their involvement with the worship along with the immorality 
of these pagan festivals. The other thing that we have to assume is that the Nicolaitans were also professing to be followers of Messiah or they wouldn't be mentioned nor the congregation be praised for resisting them. So notice our definition of the Nicolaitans includes the teachings of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam was, again, sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes of Moab. Balaam advised Moab to invite them to the feasts and sacrifices of animals offered to their gods, and so to anger God. This will come up again. It's why Yeshua was so dread against eating animals offered to idols, and uh, we even see it in Acts chapter 15 in their decision, where they tell the non-Jews to avoid blood, meat offered to idols, and sexual immorality. Balaam's teaching was to invite Israel with two of the three of those. Folks live in Ephesus where there is worship of other gods, and part of that worship is feasts that end in orgies, just like Balaam used against Israel. The fact is, most of these cities, you would find it hard to find meat that wasn't offered to idols, because all of the meat that was offered in these temples ended up in meat markets to be sold, a lot of it. Nicolaitans will have a teaching that whatever you do in the flesh will not affect your spiritual walk with God because there's the difference between your flesh and the spirit. If you participate in these orgies, it doesn't affect your relationship with God or your salvation because there's a separation between the flesh and the spirit. Of course, that's not what Yeshua teaches. Yeshua and Paul teach that you must repent from the deeds of the flesh. God does not tolerate sexual immorality. And the consequences for all of our actions in this life are Yeshua is the judge of those things. And he tells his congregations that there will be consequences. Verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so now Yeshua speaks of the importance of not losing your lampstand keeping Yeshua at the forefront of your walk through life, your witness of Yeshua, of the good news, as the direction of your walk through life, resisting immorality, doing good deeds, being Torah observant, you will have the right to eat from the tree of life in the garden. And let's look at the tree of life for a minute. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. And he expelled the man, and on the east side of the garden... He placed carabim to dwell among with whirling sword of flame guarded the way to the tree of life. So at the entrance to the garden we have in the way to the tree of life, there is a guard, a sword guarding the way to the tree of life. In John's vision, we have the son of man with a sharp double-edged sword from his mouth. And of course, Jewish tradition speaks of the Torah as a tree of life. Proverbs speaks of wisdom and understanding leading to the tree of life. And the book of Enoch speaks of a tree of wisdom that leads to righteousness and the tree of life. And so we have, uh, the next congregation we have is the congregation of Smyrna. And it begins this way in verse 8. To the angel of the assembly in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is first and the last who died and came to life again. And this is interesting in the context of Smyrna because the city actually died. It ceased to exist in about the 7th century B.C. And in the 3rd century B.C., it was rebuilt. And so they saw themselves in the city as resurrected. And it was resurrected by the Romans. 
And so it became a center of Roman emperor worship. He also uses this to tell the people who are extremely persecuted in the city that even though they may suffer death at the hands of these pagans, they will be resurrected if they just hang on to the end. Verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It says uh, that this community of people were afflicted and they were persecuted. And you can imagine why. They live in a city that worshipped and owed its existence to Roman emperors. And Domitian demanded, who was the ruler at the time, demanded that everyone refer to him as God. And the penalty for any other worship was death. If you worshipped any other god than the emperor and the gods of Rome, you were considered an idolater. And the subject for that was death. The only exception to the worship of the gods of Rome was if you were Jewish, if you were of the Jewish faith. If you were of the Jewish faith, they had an agreement that that was fine. But anybody else that worshipped any other god was subject to death. Polycarp was one of those who were martyred for his faith. And he was slandered, as this text says, by others to the Romans. And it led to his death, his execution. These folks are in the same position, and they are in fear for their lives. And this verse, and particularly the synagogue of Satan, has had many interpretations. But if we look to it closely, I think we can come up with the understanding. First, it says, I know the slander, referring to the fact that they are being falsely accused. Those in the Messianic communities later will read that some of them were put to death. In the 4th century, we're not in the 4th century yet, but in the 4th century, the church will actually, under the direction of Constantine, will actually make anything Jewish subject to death. And the synagogues weren't favorable to these messianic communities, and so they were really stuck between a rock and a hard place. And we're seeing the beginnings of this here. But understand the circumstances of this assembly. This assembly will be made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people, and they're living in a city that owes its existence to Rome. They worship the emperor of Rome, and the city also had temples to Zeus, Sibyl, the mother of the gods, Aphrodite, who was a, a goddess of love, and we can refer back to some of the goddesses we've already spoken of, Ishtar and so forth, for her description. And finally, the biggest problem, though, for these congregations is the Roman emperors, the worship of these Roman emperors. And as I said, if you didn't worship the Roman gods, then you were subject to death. As members of the Messianic faith were seen as a sect of Judaism, they would be exempt. However, if the synagogues in the city thought of them as no longer Jewish and related that to the Roman authorities, you can see why they would be in fear because the only religion with this exemption was the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. And I think that we can assume that the slander was that they were being told that the Jewish members of the congregation were no longer Jewish. And again, my favorite verse that which has been is that which shall be. That which has been done is that which shall be done. There's nothing new under the sun because you can see this even today. A Jewish man or woman who comes to faith in Yeshua are told that they're no longer Jewish. Okay, not just that though. They are cut off from making a living because of their belief. If they were Jewish, they were heavily taxed with that poll tax we spoke of earlier on every Jew. 
And remember that these people in these Eastern assemblies are Torah observants, so they're easily recognizable and subject to this tax. And so a couple of weeks from now, when we look at the mark of the beast, you're going to see that the mark of the beast doesn't have to be an actual mark. We're going to look at all the marks that were considered the mark of the beast through history, and you're going to be amazed and what people have thought about the mark of the beast. But it doesn't actually have to be a mark. Because we all walk around with either the seal of God or we walk around with the seal of the beast. It's visible right now. It's visible in the way you walk through life. And these folks are having troubles buying and selling, even working because of their faith. These folks are easily recognizable as believers. And remember our quote that these Eastern assemblies are Torah observant and at this time, it makes them easily recognizable. They have the seal of God and not the seal of beast. They are keeping Torah, wearing fringes. They're dressing, eating, and acting differently. They're Sabbath worshipers in a city that worships Roman gods. And so these believers are persecuted in every area of their lives because they're so easily recognizable by keeping the commands of God. They're suffering persecution from loyalists to Rome, I think that we can get a good piece of information here that even though we're loyal to our country, I mean, we're, we're all loyal to our country, right? We don't always agree with the way it's going, but we're all loyal to our country. And in this case, they're loyal to Rome, but that can't take away from our walk with God. It didn't in the case of these folks, at least at this point in history. There has to be a separation because we cannot conform to the world. And notice it says, you are poor, yet you are rich. If you suffer poverty because of your walk with God, you're going to be rich. If, if you're poor because of your charitable giving, you'll have reward. But if this weren't bad enough, we also have this problem, again, of the synagogue of Satan. There's a common interpretation here is this assembly is a synagogue that are not believers. They don't believe in Yeshua, and they're Jewish. And this has been used by anti-Semites to persecute the Jewish people through the years. But the first thing we should understand is that it says a synagogue of Satan. Satan means adversary. It doesn't have to mean the physical presence of Satan. It just means the people are doing Satan's bidding and they're adversaries. And by that, they're doing the same deeds. So we find a similar statement in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is from Keener's commentary on Revelation. Oppressive Jews are called the synagogue of Satan. It's paralleled in Qumran, where apostate Jews are called a congregation of Belial, another name for Satan. In contrast to true Jews in the Qumran community who have leaned on your covenant. Similarly, in another passage, contrast the elect with the assembly of the hypocrites. And so this was kind of a common statement back then. And this synagogue that opposes the followers of Messiah, more than that, it's probably Gentile adherents, whether they were proselytes or God-fearers within the synagogue, because it doesn't say they were Jews. It's not referring to Jews. It says they who are Jews, but who are not. When you use this term Jew, it's a reference to your physical lineage. And it doesn't say Israel, but Jew. And what you're going to find is that Jew is a reference to the physical lineage of the Jewish people. If you're a non-Jew through knowing Yeshua, you can be grafted into Israel, 
but a non-Jew can never become a Jew because it's a nationality. You have to be born that way, right? Doesn't that make sense? But we're grafted into Israel. And the verse tells us how these people are being adversarial. It's said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, yet you are rich. As well as the slander here is more than likely they're telling the authorities that these people were not a Jewish sect. And they didn't pay homage to Caesar. That would immediately lead to them possibly being put to death, for sure being ostracized and left without employment. Verse 10 says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will offer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. And let's look at that word for devil there. It's telling of, of what's going on. I put the definition up here for you. Prone to slander, slanderous, falsely accusing. You see, that's what's going on here. It means to slander, to falsely accuse. And so again, that is what's going on. These followers of Yeshua are being falsely accused of not being Jewish and paying homage to Caesar, which is probably true. But it says 10 days. Yeshua is not referring to 10 days as we think of 10 days. 10, if you look in the scripture, always refers to judgment. That's why we have Yom Kippur, the day of judgment, the day of atonement. What day does it occur on? The 10th of Tishrei, all right? It refers to judgment in the word. Whenever you see the word 10 in the scriptures, you're going to find that there's a judgment that's going to happen. And what's being said is they're going to be persecuted to the degree that they're going to have to make a judgment. And then he tells them to be careful, even to the point of death. In other words, hold on and make the right judgment. If it means your life, hold fast, because you will receive a crown. And the term for crown here is very interesting as well. It's not the usual word that you would use for crown. The usual word for a crown that you would wear would be diadem. But the word here is stephanos. And it's a prize in the public games, a symbol of honor generally, but more conspicuous and elaborate than simple. So if you ever seen uh, pictures of the old Roman races and stuff, you'd see they would wear a crown with leaves around it. That's what's being spoke of here. And the term is given to a wreath that's given to the victor of a race. And he's admonishing them to hang on until they get the victory. And as we're going to see in chapter 4, that victory comes through humility, suffering, and that's how the Lamb of God became the king overall. Verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And so again, this is good news for those who are suffering. You may, you may be hurt right to the point of death, but not eternal death. There's a victory in your suffering, just as there's victory in Messiah Yeshua's suffering. Now this congregation receives no correction they're doing very well, but not the next one. The next one, and this is the last one we're going to look at today, Pergamon. And Pergamon means citadel. And we're going to cover some of the harder stuff because this is really, of all of these, the really hardcore city, one of the worst. As we're going to see, Yeshua actually calls it Satan's throne. So verse 12 says, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. 
Not good words, right? In the city of Pergamon, we're going to have temples, lots of temples to the pagan gods. We have a temple for Trajan. We have a temple for Dionysus, which is the god of wine. We have a temple for Athena, a temple for Hera, a temple of Demeter. And then the most important feature is we have the great temple and altar of Zeus. That's the throne of Satan. They would offer sacrifices on this altar 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The offerings never stopped. The orgies never stopped in this city. And we also have the temple of Athena, which says, Anath, Astareth, Ishtar, thus are a prototype of Athena and the winged victory. A number of beautiful and armed or winged goddesses appear in ancient oriental iconography. Some of them doubtlessly represent Anna. Now this is some hard stuff for some. What we're being told here is that all these goddesses have a common background, like I started out by saying. And they all have the same type of worship. And not just these, Diana or Asherah, and all the others have common backgrounds. And if you take them all back, you're going to find their origin is in Babel, Babylon. And this is not even a complete listing of the goddesses that are related. And they would include Astarte of the Canaanites. And like we just read, Diana of Ephesus. They found a statue of Diana of Ephesus. And uh, it was just like the one we looked at earlier, covered with breasts and she was a goddess of fertility but look at these goddesses the egyptian goddesses of anath the canaanite goddess of astareth and ishtar for which we get the name of our holiday easter because she was also known in rome and we actually celebrate the resurrection of the messiah on the day the pagans honored the goddess of ishtar well let's look at the throne of satan this was the center of the town, and I put a picture up here for you. There it is. That's the temple, the throne of Zeus. And you might wonder, if you look at this, how it's so meticulously preserved in a country like Turkey. Why would they go through the expense? It's not like the other ruins, but it has meticulously been restored. Let's look at another one, because this is modern. You see the people walking around? This is a modern actual picture of this throne of Zeus. But I can tell you this, it no longer exists in Turkey. You see, it was excavated and sent away in pieces. And then in 1930, it was reconstructed in its new home, Berlin, Germany. And so imagine that it came from a city where God's people were persecuted and martyred and where Yeshua praises them for resisting the worship of these gods and goddesses, not polluting the face with the worship of these gods and goddesses, even unto death. And this throne of Zeus was moved to Germany and reconstructed where in just a few years would begin the worst atrocity against God's people in the history of the world. That which has been is that which shall be. That which has been done is that which shall be done. Revelation chapter 2 verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have a people who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so they're living in the center of pagan worship. 
They're not worshiping Zeus and Diana or the other gods, but there are some there that are participating in these practices that Balaam taught. Balaam, of course, taught the Moabites to entice Israel into the worship of other gods through sexual immorality and the eating of temple sacrifices. In that way, Balaam would not have to curse Israel because he was forbidden by God to curse Israel, but in that way, they would sin and curse themselves. And these followers of Yeshua biggest threat would have been the Roman rulers and the failure to honor the emperor as God because there's another temple there that wasn't restored. It's still in Turkey, and that is the temple of Augustus, a Roman ruler. And so he was worshipped as well. Verse 16 says, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And the sword of the Son of Man's mouth is the word of God. It brings judgment. The judgment, those who are frequenting these temples will suffer. You know, Yeshua doesn't need an army. He only needs to speak, and it's done. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. So what is the hidden manna? Well, David Stern did some great research on this and it's probably the best explanation that i found so i'm going to read it the biblical data are that god fed israel in the wilderness with bread from heaven which was called manna actually man and that a part of it was preserved in the ark of the covenant the talmud says that in the third heaven mills grind manna for the righteous According to 2 Baruch chapter 29, 8, in the messianic era, the treasury of manna will again descend from on high, and those alive will eat of it. When the first temple was destroyed, Jeremiah, or an angel, rescued the ark with its pot of manna, and they are being kept for the days of Messiah, when God's people will again eat manna. Yochanan here uses the language of such traditions to show that the believers in him will be admitted to the messianic banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I don't agree with all of that, but I do agree that, and I really like the part about the wedding supper of the Lamb. But you might remember that manna also appeared as dew on the ground, and dew is a synonym for resurrection. And another thing about the manna, remember that it was only good for a day, okay? If you kept it more than a day, it spoiled. And so if Aaron kept a jar of manna for more than a day and it did not spoil, obviously we learn here that there's more than one kind of manna. There's the kind that spoiled and then there's the kind that lasts for eternity. And the hidden manna is of the kind that does not spoil, but endures. And Yeshua told us that he was the bread of life come down from heaven. And so we can easily see the symbolism in the manna. And Yeshua tells us that the bread at Passover, he says, or the bread at Passover, this is my body broken for you. And so the manna is representative of eternal life with Yeshua. And then in verse 17, I also give you a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And this white stone is something, again, that's very mysterious. No one that I've ever read really had a very good understanding. There are many theories, and uh, you can choose from a number of them the one you like. I happen to like this one by David Stern again. In the ancient world, a white stone was used as an admission ticket to public festivals. Believers will be admitted to the Messianic feast. On it was written either their own name or that of Messiah. And so 
What we're seeing Yeshua say is resist these pagan practices and these pagan feasts and I will give you entrance to the messianic banquet, the bread of life. And I like uh, that one again because it speaks of the messianic banquet. More important is the name on the stone. And we covered Jacob a few weeks ago. We looked at Jacob. He receives a new name in the Torah portion a few weeks ago. To change one's name, you have to have some authority to do that. And if we look at Jacob, we'll find that the name change was representative of who he had become and what he had accomplished. And so I would assume that this new name would be one that would be representative of what we have accomplished in life, of who we become in Messiah. Did you overcome? And what things did you overcome? And we can see this in the renaming of Jacob. His name meant heel grabber, but his new name meant overcomer, one who prevails with God and with men. And we can see this in the renaming of Abraham as well. Remember, Abraham meant father or exalted father. And God changed his name and he would become Abraham, the father of many nations. And so we can assume that this is what is meant by the new name. What these judgments have in common is they all warn against assimilation with the world. The followers of Yeshua can't assimilate into a culture with pagan worship and values, but we're to keep the values that God gives us in his word and with his spirit. So we're going to continue with the admonition of these congregations next week. We should finish it up next week. The rest of them are easier than Ephesus, which was a long one.